2: Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured, not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
3: Hey, history enthusiasts. You get not one, but two events in history today. With that said, on with the show. Welcome back to This Day in History class, where we reveal a new piece of history every day. The day was February 26, 1917. A five man ensemble called the Original Dixieland Jazz Band, that's jazz with two S's, recorded two songs in the New York City recording studios of the Victor Talking Machine Company. The band members in the Original Dixieland Jazz Band were cornetist Nick LaRocca, clarinetist Larry Shields, trombonist Eddie Edwards, drummer Tony Sparbaro, and pianist Henry Ragus. And the two songs were Livery Stable Blues and Dixie Jazz One Step, the first commercial jazz recordings ever. See, jazz had been evolving for years before these songs were recorded. Jazz traces its origins to African American communities in the American South and New Orleans in the early 20th century, and it has roots in ragtime and blues. New Orleans especially was a soupy mix of people of many different ethnicities, and jazz was influenced by African rhythms, African American musical traditions, and European music. Improvisation, call-and-response, and syncopated rhythms are important features of jazz, but they're just some of many. The thing about jazz is that it's hard to pin down, The kinds of music that fall under the umbrella of jazz are vast and jazz is nearly impossible to define as a musical genre. So as you could imagine, the task of awarding the honor of first jazz recording to anyone is dangerous territory. Here's how the original Dixieland Jazz Band or ODJB won the title. After some member switch-ups, band name changes, a move from Chicago to New York, and a considerable rise in attention, ODJB got a residence at Ryzen Weber's Cafe in New York, and they had been drawing sizable crowds. So the Victor Talking Machine Company offered to record them, and they recorded livery-stable blues and Dixie Jazz One Step. The songs were marketed as novelty. Livery-stable blues even had animal-like sound effects, But the songs were energetic, brash, and new, and they caught on while ODJB gained even more popularity. The recording's release was announced in the May 1917 issue of the Victor Supplement, which listed newly released recordings. There's a picture of the band in the announcement, accompanied by the following copy. The jazz band is the very latest thing in the development in music, It has sufficient power and penetration to inject life into a mummy and will keep ordinary human dancers on their feet till breakfast time. Livery Stable Blues in particular we recommend because, on the principle that like cures like, this particular variety will be a positive cure for the common or garden type of blues. The recording sold well, even though both songs faced legal issues later and some people look back on the songs as tacky, lacking in technical skill, and too closely associated with minstrelsy. Others note the band's merits. Either way, the original Dixieland jazz band's success helped spur a jazz craze and led to jazz spreading widely and developing quickly. The band was reportedly the first to use the word jazz in its name— and they helped bring jazz to an international audience. The members of the original Dixieland Jazz Band were all-white, unlike so many other early jazz musicians and many of the musicians that inspired ODJB. Considering the racially mixed roots of jazz, it's not that off-the-wall for the first commercial jazz recordings to be attributed to an all-white band. That said... Record companies didn't pay too much attention to Black musicians at the time, despite the notable integration in New Orleans. So when record companies began taking serious notice of jazz in the 1910s, it makes sense that they would turn to a white band. Some critics don't feel the need to label O.D.J.B.'s songs the first jazz recordings, as jazz doesn't have a definitive starting point, There had been recordings before that that were well on their way to jazz, like the Versatile Four's recording of composer and band leader Wilbur Sweatman's Down Home Rag. And the ODJB wasn't really improvising in the recording. But the recording still marked a turning point in jazz history, as it incited a surge in commercial jazz recordings and introduced the world of jazz to many more people. I'm Eves Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. And I wanted to note a few things here. According to legend, the Victor Talking Machine Company offered musician Freddie Keppard a recording before it offered one to the original Dixieland jazz band. But Keppard turned it down, maybe because he didn't want to be copied or because he wouldn't be paid. Also, in the 1950s, band member Nick LaRocca went on to make self-aggrandizing claims that he invented jazz solely, and he made statements about how white people were making jazz before black people were. And another thing is, the band later replaced the two S's in the word jazz in their name with two Z's. In the early days of jazz, the word jazz had all kinds of variations in spelling, like one S two S's, two Z's. I have a lot more notes about jazz, but we'll save that for a later date. If you have any burning questions or comments to tell us, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at T-D-I-H-C Podcast. We'll see you here in the same place tomorrow. Hi everyone, I'm Eves, and welcome to This Day in History class, a podcast where we dust off a little piece of history and place it ever so gently on your brain shelf every day. The day was February 26th, 1909. The first public screenings of Kinema took place at the Palace Theatre of Varieties in London, Kinemacolor was the first successful color motion picture process. Hand coloring of motion pictures began in the 1890s. By 1899, Frederick Marshall Lee and Edward Raymond Turner had applied for the first British color moving picture patent. But the early color film processes were rudimentary, costly, and time-consuming. Over the years, people built on the technology for color in motion pictures. There was William N. L. Davidson, who experimented with color cinematography. He patented a three-color still photography system, but he did not create a successful natural color motion picture system. Film producer Charles Urban and engineer Alfred Darling also took interest in the issue in the early days of film. In 1903, Urban commissioned hypnotist and film pioneer George Albert Smith to work on a color motion picture process. In November of 1906, Smith patented the Kinemacolor process. Kinemacolor was an additive process using alternating red and green filters that were applied to the shutter in front of the camera and in front of the projector. The two-color system couldn't produce blue and violet hues, and whites had a yellowish coloration— So Smith proposed using blue-violet filters over the projection light. The first motion picture shown in Kinema Color was an eight-minute short filmed in Brighton and called A Visit to the Seaside, screened in 1908. Months later, on February 26, 1909, 21 short films were shown at the Palace Theatre in London. It was the first time the general public saw Kinema Color. The process was first shown in the United States in December of that year, at an exhibition in Madison Square Garden in New York. Charles Urban formed the Natural Color Kinematograph Company Limited in March of 1909, and he began producing films using the process. Hundreds of kinema color projectors were installed in theaters across Britain, the U.S., and Japan, but it was hard to make back the money spent on installing the projectors. On top of that, the process caused distortions in images that audiences weren't particularly fond of. In the U.S., Kinema Color's Hollywood studio was taken over by director D.W. Griffith. He was shown a Kinema Color adaptation of Thomas Dixon's novel The Klansman, a book that depicts the Ku Klux Klan in a positive light. Griffith took over the project, and though the film was never released, it led him to make the controversial film The Birth of a Nation. The company was not financially successful, and it went into liquidation in 1915 in the wake of a legal case over the Kinemacolor patent. It stopped production that year. Companies continued to experiment with and refine color motion picture film throughout the 1920s and 1930s. And in 1932, Technicolor introduced a three-color process— it was the first full-color process used successfully in theaters. I'm Eve Stephcote, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. Know any fellow history buffs who would enjoy the show? You can share it with them. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Podcast, And you can send your thoughts or comments to us at this day at iHeartMedia.com. Thanks for going on this trip through history with us. We'll see you again tomorrow with
1: another episode. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool.